hope everyone had a nice holiday. Um, and if you're wondering why I have background rain sounds, it's not ASMR. It's not a YouTube video. I'm in my car outside of my garage because I have tried since 6 a.m. to record this episode and my cat has body slammed my door each and every time. So my only option is to sit in my car outside on my lunch break. <laughs> We're all friends here. You guys understand. You love me. You'll think this is endearing one day, right? So, um, Let's just get started about Brian Schaefer today. Um, we're going to talk about his super mysterious disappearance. Uh, Brian Randall Schaefer was born on February 11th, 1979, and grew up in a small Ohio town with his parents, Randy and Renee Schaefer, and brother Derek. He graduated from Pickerington High School in 1997 and got a bachelor's degree in microbiology from The Ohio State University in 2003. Then he began medical school in 2004 at OSU. On Friday, March 31st, 2006, during his second year, he was having dinner with his dad, Randy Schaefer, at an Ohio Outback Steakhouse. This was the beginning of his spring break week kickoff, and in just a few short days, he would be flying to Florida for a Miami vacation with his girlfriend, Alexis Wagner. Randy could tell how exhausted Brian seemed at dinner. He knew he hadn't been getting much sleep because he was staying up late studying and preparing for exams. But despite his exhaustion, Randy says Brian provided him more comfort than he may have known. Randy's wife and Brian's mother, Renee, had passed away about 25 days prior. When Randy asked for the same order that he and Renee had eaten many times before, he started to cry a little bit, and Brian said to him, It's all right, Dad. I'll be with you as much as I can. Randy recalled that Brian didn't seem depressed or off during their dinner. Rather, he was looking forward to going out with a friend and former roommate, Clint Florence, and relaxing, just having a good time and not thinking of the stressors in his life. Randy was like... Yeah, I don't think this is such a good idea to go out drinking because of Brian's lack of rest lately, but he kept it to himself because he knew that his son needed some downtime after all he had been through with the death of his mother, studying, and exams. Brian's brother, Derek, had spoken with Brian earlier that evening, and Brian asked if he wanted to come meet up for drinks with him and Clint, but Derek had plans to take his girlfriend to the Funny Bone, which was a comedy club, and said that maybe later that night they would come out. As the night came, though, Derek and his girlfriend headed back to Derek's neighborhood and met some other friends at a local bar. That would be the last time that Derek spoke to his brother. Clint and Brian planned their first stop at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which was located at 1546 North High Street in Columbus, Ohio. The bar was located in the university's Gateway District. So basically up and down, up and down North High Street, um, there were bars and little shops and businesses and things in the Gateway Film Center, which by the way, um, I don't know if they still do it, but I read a little snippet that said they show the Groundhog movie, you know, the movie with Bill Murray, 12 times in a row. And then anyone who makes it through the event receives free movie tickets for a year. Obviously, this is on Groundhog Day. So I just thought that was kind of quirky. Anyway, um, the bar was closed in May of 2018. And as far as I can tell, it still sits vacant above, um, I believe it's Casuela's Mexican Cantina. It's their second location. Um, I was trying to do some investigative Google mapping, but it got a little uh, confusing. So I think it's empty. Um, we'll get back to that later, but Brian's King Avenue apartment was only about half a mile from Gateway. So he left on foot that evening and he meets up with Clint at about 9:30 at Ugly Tuna. A few minutes before 10, Brian calls Alexis and says that he will see her when she gets back to Columbus because she was in Toledo visiting family. Um, her dog wasn't doing so well and she wanted to go and spend some time with her before they left on their trip. Now, Alexis says that Brian sounded perfectly fine when they spoke 
and Brian and Clint headed to the North Shore Tavern a couple hours after they arrived at Ugly Tuna. A little before midnight, they go to the Brothers Bar and Grill, and here they find Clint's friend Meredith Reed, and all three of them head back to the Ugly Tuna. Around 1.15 a.m., three can be seen on CCTV footage heading up to the bar on an escalator. So to get inside the bar, you had to enter through the Gateway's movie theater, as far as I can tell. And Ugly Tuna was located at the top of the escalator. So despite its reputation for being kind of stinky and grimy with terrible service, it was a huge hit because a lot of people liked the outdoor balcony vibe because it sat atop the building. And it also had cheap drinks. As the clock rolled over into April Fool's Day, Brian completely vanished without so much as one uh, solid, publicly released, anyway, trace in the nearly 16 years since he was last seen. Brian became separated from Clint and Meredith at some point, and as the bar begins to close, Clint checks the men's restroom, and they look around at the bar. They try reaching him by phone around 2.01 a.m., and it goes straight to voicemail. By about 2.09 a.m., They're pulling out of the parking garage and Meredith's vehicle and assumed that Brian just found another way home. Now, according to Clint and some others, Brian had in the past left his friends while they were out drinking. Um, I did see in another source that he took off and left for about a week, but he stayed in contact with his friends and family during this time. But I'm not sure how credible this is. So um, his friends leaving him at the bar without knowing he was safe was, you know, kind of shitty. But if he had a history of doing this, maybe they you know, we're just assuming this was going to be like his, uh, his other times and he would get home safely. Uh, about 1.55 a.m., Brian is seen on CCTV, CCTV footage again outside the entrance of the bar right near the top of the escalators talking with two women. Um, their names are Amber and Brighton. I'm not going to say their last names here, although Brighton seems to be, um, she doesn't shy away from this case. Like she, uh, they both have done interviews, but Brighton seems to kind of be more uh of a presence in social media like she'll comment on things um but I'm just not gonna say her last name for other reasons so apparently they knew Clint because at the time Clint was a teacher assistant and Amber was one of his students I read another source or actually it was from Clint in an interview saying that he um ran into his students I have a quote of that later but I in a lot of places it says it was just Amber so it doesn't matter either way one or both of them had been students of his, so they recognized him. Um, But before this night, neither of them had met Brian, and both of the women claimed that Brian had offered to walk them to their cars, but at the very last minute, he decides to stay at the bar. They don't know why. They've never said, you know, I don't even think they're sure why. Uh, Both women claim that they left the bar right after they're seen on the footage, about 1.58 a.m., and they report last seeing Brian leaning up against the wall of the bar out of the view of the camera. Now, Columbus officers, police officers, are standing about feet from them. And Brian goes off camera, seemingly toward the entrance of the bar. And that's the last time that anyone has ever seen Brian. Columbus at the time was one of, if not the most, surveyed cities in the state. And the bar had a camera at every exit. Investigators went through all the footage. They checked other areas within the bar and all the exits. They did come up with one possible exit that he could have left undetected, which was a back door that opened up out into the midst of construction, like major construction. So investigators say that this would have been difficult to navigate while sober, let alone intoxicated, as they assume Brian was, just based upon Clint's recount of the evening. Um, You know, and 
one interview, he says that they went to the Ugly Tuna and they had three, four, five shots. Um, another source he's cited is saying that they stopped and had one shot each of hard liquor at every stop. So a lot of people say that Brian was drinking extensively that day. Um, I believe that he was having a beer with his dad before he was going out. So it just seemed like he had been drinking all day long and was probably pretty well sauced up by 2 a.m. We don't know that, can't prove it, but just based off of witness statements. Um, at this time, um, it, it seemed like he was having a pretty good time. Like when you watch the footage, it doesn't seem like he is worried about anything. Um, he's just enjoying a night out. His body language doesn't indicate that there's anything suspicious or worrisome going on. <clears throat> and the reason that I hesitate is because there is um, a new piece of the footage that's kind of been enhanced and there is like some strange behavior going on, but we'll get to that. So when Alexis couldn't reach Brian early Saturday afternoon, she just assumed that he was sleeping off his night out. And by midnight, she was like, okay, like what the hell is going on? Because each time she tried to call him, it went straight to his voicemail. By Sunday, she called Randy and said that she couldn't reach Brian and none of his friends had heard from him since that Friday night. Randy said that Brian had never showed up for a visit that they had planned on Saturday. So he asks Derek to go to his apartment and check on him. When Brian didn't show up to catch the flight to Miami with Alexis on April 3rd, he was reported missing because they knew that he would not have missed the flight. He was very excited about the trip. And many close to them say that he was planning to propose to Alexis on the trip. So they're like, okay, something's seriously wrong because he wouldn't have missed this. Alexis heads back to Columbus feeling that something is definitely off. Um, when she arrived at his apartment, this is before the Monday, I apologize. So before they reported him missing, um, she had driven back from Toledo to Columbus and she's like, I just know something's wrong. She goes to his apartment and she used her key to enter and like nothing was out of place. His car was still parked in its spot. His bed was made. Everything was neat and orderly. Like his glasses were still where they should be. Um, which is another red flag because like he wouldn't have taken off without a lot of like his cell phone charger was still plugged in the wall. And they're like, he would have taken his glasses and his charger and things like that. Now her apartment was so close to Brian's that when she looked out her back door, she could see across the alley. Like she could see his apartment from her back door. So she just sits on the couch and kind of like waits for Brian to come home. She's expecting him to just waltz through the door. But the only one that showed up was Derek. Um, she ended up staying the night at his apartment that first night, again, hoping he would just come home so they could leave on their trip. In the months to come, she would find that she was many times just staring out back, waiting to see him appear because I think that you have surmised he did not show up. Investigators continue to review the bar and the security footage, and they find one area that did not have a camera angled at it, and it was a temporary service elevator. So could Brian have hopped in and made his great escape? The problem with this theory is that Brian has never been spotted on any footage from any surrounding bars or businesses. And like I said, this was a heavily surveillanced area. Like you couldn't hardly go anywhere in this area of Columbus or even surrounding areas and not be caught somewhere. So is it possible that he avoided detection by throwing on a hat or keeping his head down, changing his clothes? Like perhaps, um, you know, the area was crawling with students and party goers because it was spring break and it was a weekend. But the question is, how did he transport a change of clothes? You know, there's nothing showing that he had a bag or anything like that on the footage that we do have of him. So where would he put it? Um, there is an image of someone with a similar build and jeans and white shoes, just like Brian had on in the image of him coming up the escalator, going down the escalator, wearing a hat and some kind of thin jacket. So 
those both could have easily been rolled up and shoved in jean pockets, some people theorize. Other online detectives focus on one point in the video where two guys who were standing closest to Brian exchange something by hand, like maybe a note. And right after that, one of them turns toward Brian, Amber, and Brighton. And then Brian walks out of the frame, never to be seen again. Personally, I think that they were just turning around because the trio um, were all drunk. The women were clearly drunk. Brighton has said, like, yeah, we were really drunk. Uh, we can't remember a lot because we were drunk. <laughs> um, and, you know, they were possibly being loud based upon the footage. So I think that the guys were just turning and looking to see, like, it was they were grabbing their attention quickly. Um, Despite investigators believing that Brian went back into the bar, there is zero footage to prove so. There is enough clearance from the door to the area that the surveillance camera picks up to be able to um, hide underneath. Like, when you're watching the video, and I'm just assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to go um, look up the footage, and I hope that you do because it will make more sense, but the way that the camera is angled, you cannot see directly underneath the door. So all you can see is Brian turning and going toward the door. And so everyone assumes that he goes back into the bar, but nobody knows that for sure because you can't see that just the way that the camera is set. Um, now, investigators claim that they have accounted for everyone that entered and exited the bar aside from Brian. So every single person that came in, they saw every single person coming out. They have accounted for every single person that night. Not Brian though. Uh, the only really personal thing that I'm going to interject here is when I was watching the footage, it did stick out to me. The way that Brian places his hands on the railing coming up almost mirrors the way that the man going down that I talked about earlier places his. So like Brian's hands are on each side of the rail or the whatever you want to call it, the escalator thingies. Um, I'm just going to call them railings for simplicity. So like he's got both of his hands on either side and it creates this kind of arc with his shoulders and his arms. Is this earth shattering? No. Uh, but the way that his jeans fall over the shoes that are like really brightly white for both of these men and the arm placement did kind of make me go like, oh, but if Amber and Brighton had the times right, um, Brian was likely still leaning against the wall whenever the person goes down the escalator. So it's a pretty big stretch. Um, another personal opinion is that I don't think Brian was disguising himself and going down the escalator. <laughs> like, I don't actually believe that. I'm just saying when you're reading about this case and you're reading all of these theories, that is something that you're like, oh, okay, that looks eerily similar. Um, so it just goes to show how much someone who looks like Brian could easily blend in, especially during spring break week. Now, cell phone technology was not the greatest in 2006 compared to what it is now, obviously. And the last known activity was around 2.10 a.m. when Clint sent Brian a text saying, like, where are you? Um, so let's quickly for just a second talk about these timestamps. The well-known CCTV footage of Brian's last movements that I just kind of went over were at 1.55 a.m. He's talking to Amber and Brighton until about 1.58 when they report leaving the bar and then Brian seemingly goes back inside, which no one will ever know for sure, unless the police have a view of him entering the bar that they haven't released publicly, which I, um, I'm not sure would be completely out of the realm of possibility. We'll just say that. Uh, Meredith and Clint say that they tried calling Brian at approximately 2 a.m. and it went straight to voicemail. So that that is two minutes, like three max at the most, um, to turn off your phone and then disappear for 16 years. Wild. Um, I mean, it doesn't take too long to turn your phone off, I guess, but 
it just seems like everything happened so quickly. Like you're talking to these girls at one moment and then two, three minutes later, your phone's off and nobody has ever heard from you again. Pretty crazy. Search dogs were brought in and tracked Brian's scent from the construction site in an alleyway leading from Ugly Tuna to a Wendy's close by. I think this Wendy's is now um, no longer standing or has been turned into something else, but it's not a Wendy's anymore. Now, this route could have been used to walk back to Brian's apartment, and in the days leading up to the search, it had rained, which may have complicated things a little bit with the dogs. Either way, the Wendy's is where the dogs stopped cold on any trace of Brian. Retired Columbus Sergeant John Hurst, he's now retired, but he was working the case then, says that a dive team searched the Olentangy River, but many locals think that it's highly unlikely that Brian would have made the approximately 30-minute walk there willingly. Like, he had no reason to go that way. It was the opposite direction. Why would he walk 30 minutes and then just fall into the river? Alexis called Brian every day just to hear his voicemail, but in September of 2006, she was frazzled to find that the phone rang three times. This call showed that the phone was pinging in Hilliard, Ohio, which is about 14 miles northwest of Columbus. Cell phone company, um, the text there, said that this was likely a glitch caused by the tower sending out a signal to search for the phone, which causes a delay. I don't know, squat. Uh, that can be considered like certifiable about cell phone technology. Um, I only know what I know from listening to Dateline and people have been wrongly accused from cell phone technology. So I don't know. Um, But some people say that the phone had to have been turned on in order for it to ring. That makes sense to me. But a technical glitch, you know, would make sense as well. I think it could go absolutely either way. Expanded footage from the entrance to the Ugly Tuna has recently been shown on HLN's Real Life Nightmare. So this is what I was kind of um, touching on earlier. This expanded, you know, kind of a better view, which makes you think like, why have you waited so long to put this out? I don't know. Um, So after review of this quote unquote new footage, which shows the bottom portion of the screen that was always cropped out. So when you see Brian walk off, like you can only see him from kind of mid chest level up um or maybe even at the shoulders I don't know but in this view like you get to see everything down to the bottom um that the speculation about this footage is that Brian was dropping something into Brighton's purse because you could never see that far down before and now you can see that his hand is like in his pocket um and you're just gonna have to go look this up because I can't describe it because when, even when I'm watching it, to me at first, it looks like his hand is already in her purse, but then it looks like it's in his pocket. So it's, it's kind of hard. And one video I saw, they slowed everything down frame by frame, you know, and kind of um, narrated it for you. So it's worth checking out. Uh, but anyway, there's a lot of speculation that Brian dropped his phone into her purse to prepare for his new life, like to get away. Uh, It is reported that one of the women's mothers lived in Hilliard where Brian's phone had pinged. And at that time, Hilliard held one of the only or one of the few phone recycling centers. And so they're like, this is all too coincidental. But I think that it, it was just coincidental because, as I said, Brighton's been pretty forthcoming. So why wouldn't she turn in his phone? Like you're at some point going to find this person's phone why wouldn't you turn that over? And I don't think it was some conspiracy, but some people do. Um, other people think that he was entering his phone number into Brighton's phone and then just tossed it in her, into her purse as she was like walking away because her and her friend were, you know, being drunk and whatever. 
Um, a lot of people debunk this though, because it appears that she is talking on her cell phone. And at the very end of that footage, it does look a little bit like she's holding something to her ear, like she's talking, but it doesn't in the beginning. So it could go either way. Uh, reports that Brian was allegedly kissing Brighton earlier in the night inside the bar. This may have also been related to an alleged altercation between Clint and Brian, because some people say that there were, uh, verbal, there was a verbal altercation between the two. And I can't remember exactly now, I'm sorry, if it's either Amber or Brighton, but one of them is say like, yeah, like they were talking loud to each other and you could tell it was kind of tense, but number one, I was drunk and I can't remember. Number two, it was really loud in there. So I don't know what they were saying. So because, you know, Clint knows that Brian is so serious with Alexis, like maybe this was a cause of some type of little tiff between them. Um, Some believe that this could be drug related because Brian takes an extended look at the officer standing nearby before he possibly dropped something into her purse. Now, normally I would think that this is like eye roll worthy, but several other people like commenting on articles and things like that online say that they were students during this time and they knew one way or another that Clint was into the cocaine scene because they were as well. You have to keep in mind that these are nameless, faceless people on the internet who may have had nothing better to do than start shit. (laughs) Um, But you know, when you see a lot of those comments and people were like, yeah, I know because I went here and I did this and I was a student there and blah, 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 you know, it can give you pause. Um, others say that in this footage, all Brian was doing was taking out his phone and checking the time or checking for messages and simply putting the phone back into his pocket, which is kind of what it looks like to me, honestly. Um, if you look at it, it's like he reaches in, grabs his phone, looks it's 2006 so I'm like I'm trying to look for like a flip you know you'd flip it open with your thumb kind of thing um but the image is kind of grainy you know it is it's not the best it is enhanced a bit from what the regular footage is out there but it's still not the greatest so you can't tell too much now in a 2018 interview Brighton did confirm that she entered her number into Brian's phone so my thought is like why would he need to put his number into her phone he could have. I mean, I, you know, you've exchanged numbers with people before and like you each put it in the phone. But normally what happens is you're like, here's my number. And then the person texts you right then, or they've got it. And they're like, I'll text you later. So again, he absolutely could have been entering his number, but it seems unnecessary if she had already entered her number into his phone. So while looking for different videos of the CCTV footage, I have run across someone with the same username who has commented on almost every video. This person says that they have researched Brian's case for years, obtaining a copy of his cell phone bill and studying it for months. The commenter says that they have linked a landline number to an OSU employee that didn't fit, but later found that a friend of Brian's had once lived in the house that the landline was linked to. Interesting to note is that when someone else asked this person if they had reported the information to the police, the response was, quote, no, even if they didn't know, they do by now indirectly. If they wanted to reach me, they could. This was like three weeks ago. (laughs) So weird. Um, And again, please keep in mind, these are legitimately nameless, faithless people like commenting on. I think this one was YouTube specifically. Um, I just found it interesting that I kept seeing the same person on so many videos, regardless of the upload date. So worth mentioning about a week before Brian's disappearance, Randy had just returned to his job as an electrician after being off for about four weeks after losing his wife of nearly 30 years, who he called his soulmate when Brian went missing. So 
the man had been back to work for like one week. And then the second biggest blow of his life occurs. On September 14th, 2008, Randy went out to his backyard into the shed to prepare for the area's severe storm warning. Um, He was going to get tools and things to prepare for the inevitable power outage. This was like a bad storm, not just like a little windstorm. Um, Almost every person that I knew in my area was without power for some period of time, a couple days, a couple weeks. My boss at the time was going on um, about two and a half weeks with no power. So, you know, pretty significant storm. Um, I can remember seeing a traffic light on the street closest to my house just like flipping around itself on the wire, like a, you know, like a swing. It was wild. Um, So when the wind picked up at Randy's house, it was really, really heavy, and it caused a neighbor's tree to fall into his yard, and it landed on Randy's head, killing him instantly. In the two years prior to his death, Randy never once gave up searching for Brian. He dedicated himself to the searches, lobbying for changes in how missing adults are handled by the local police departments, and attending rallies and vigils for other missing persons. He would spend hours and hours wading through the river looking for any sign of his son. Within the online guestbook comments of Randy's obituary posted by the funeral home, someone typed, quote, Dad, I love you. Love, Brian. After reaching out to authorities in the U.S. Virgin Islands, because that's where the location of the online comment was listed, it was confirmed a few days later that the post came from a Franklin, Franklin County, excuse me, Ohio library and was deemed a, quote, cruel hoax. Um, so I would like to say, whoever you are, I hope that you get assworms. Randy began a website to aid in the search for his missing son and began receiving a lot of tips, but they all panned out to be fake. I will never understand this. Like, you have to be a special kind of gross to do these things. Um, But anyway, while he was a guest on Todd Matthews' Missing Pieces radio show, which aired on October 23rd, 2007, Randy explained one such tip was an email alleging that they knew what happened to Brian. Now, as Randy recalls it, this was a man saying Brian had made a comment to a couple of guys about having sex and it pissed them off, so they beat him up. When Brian came to, he had a penis in his mouth and then they shot him in the head and burned his body. The author of the email also said that he was one of the guys who was there and if Brian's girlfriend Alexis was still around, to have her give him a call. So, I imagine, imagine being a parent and getting this kind of stuff. Like, you're gross. Whoever you are, you're gross. Uh, Randy spoke about the Ugly Tuna and the Sky Bar, which was located directly across the courtyard from Ugly Tuna and is where Randy once held a fundraiser. The Sky Bar told their employees, um, as well as Ugly Tuna from how I perceived this information, to never talk to anyone about Brian's case. And if they did, they'd be fired. While having lunch with Tim Miller, he's the founder of EcuSearch. At Ugly Tuna one day, the staff was acting nervous and um, just kind of like fluttering about, according to Randy. Tim just wanted to see the bar where Brian had disappeared. So they decided to have lunch there and it didn't take too long for Gateway Campus Security to show up. And they were like, we weren't told about this. What's going on? So Tim and Randy are like, yeah, we're just eating lunch. (laughs) That's it. Um, Now, according to Randy, Gateway Campus didn't want Brian's missing persons flyers posted in their courtyard. The president of the area's Crime Stoppers at the time, Kevin Miles, says, like, okay, well, this is his son, and he's missing, and he's last seen in the bar located within your campus, and he wants to put up flyers. And if you have a problem with that, then we can call the local news to come down, and you can explain to them why you won't let him, 
Randy says that right after this, naturally they changed their tune and the flyers went up, but not for more than maybe a month before they were taken down. Brian's apartment was robbed in May of 2006, but two other apartments were hit and whoever was there maybe didn't realize what they were taking because two guitars were left, which Randy says were way more valuable than the DVD player and the two small TVs that were taken. And apparently investigators found nothing that leads them to believe that his disappearance is linked to this robbery. Some people who lean into the drug theory say that this could be related to Brian owing some dealers money, but... Uh, it seems pretty far-fetched, uh, just based upon what was taken. The people who believe Brian up and left his life to start over cite his life's stressors. They say it was his parents' dream of being a doctor, not he- not his. However, in his last Christmas, Brian spent with his mom in 2005. She was a registered nurse. He wrote, you inspire me to do great things in her card. A MySpace entry from Brian does say he would rather be on a beach smoking with Bob Marley, and friends say his passion was to play in a Jimmy Buffett-type band someday. Randy says that Brian would make comments with the intention of poking at him, like remarks like being a doctor was a quote-unquote side thing. In an April 10th, 2006 interview on Rita Cosby Live and Direct, Clint says that he and Brian go out, which was not a new thing because he and Brian always went out, and toward the end of the night, Quote, we see some students of mine. We sat down next to them. It was Meredith to my right, then me, and then two girls, and then Brian was doing his usual thing, and he was talking to those two girls. And I go, yeah, Brian, stick around. He has a tendency to walk away, and probably 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, I turn to say, Meredith, let's go. It was closing time, 2.10, 2 o'clock, and Brian was nowhere to be seen. Now, Meredith and Clint both retained high-priced attorneys almost immediately after police became involved. Not that there's anything wrong with that because personally, I fully support being represented. Like anytime you are closely linked to any kind of potential criminal investigation, like you should absolutely lawyer up. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's suspicious. Oh, they got an attorney. You should. I mean, I have no authority to give legal advice. I'm just saying that's what I would do. So I don't personally find that super suspicious. Um, however, it would only be Meredith to take a polygraph test, which she says that she passed. Randy says he took one and passed his, which included questions around the possibility that Randy and Brian were scheming a life insurance payout together. Now, the investigator did say, according to Randy, that the needle jumped a bit at this question. And Randy was like, well, yeah, I bet it did because I was really pissed. Like, I was outraged at that kind of question. But some sources report that Randy and Brian's relationship wasn't the greatest because he was um, kind of upset about money that his sons had received after Renee passed away. So maybe that question set off a reaction. I've also read that only Derek received money from his mother. So um, who knows? It's definitely not verifiable information. Uh, One piece of information provided by a private investigator assisting the Schaefer family is that there was tension between Randy and Brian because some of Randy's choices went against Brian's morals, excuse me. But to protect the family due to the private nature, he would not elaborate about what it is. Now, some people have speculated that maybe Randy was um, seeing someone else in the last kind of bit of Renee's life. Um, I didn't look too far into that because... If the man says it's private, then it's private. So I I don't want to look into it, but I just wanted to mention that here because you will find that if you start looking around. Now, in 2009, in a phone interview, Amber did confirm that she was never contacted and asked to take a polygraph. 
Brian has a Pearl Jam Stickman tattoo on his right bicep. Um, the Stickman was pictured on the CD case for Pearl Jam's debut single, Alive. And Brian had planned to attend a concert in Detroit in May. Uh, so that would have been about a month after his disappearance. And during the concert, Eddie Vedder asked the concert goers for their help in finding Brian. The tickets to that show were allegedly sold in an auction by Alexis, and the proceeds went toward Brian's reward fund. I just want to quickly say here really quickly, can I say quickly again? Um, I just want to mention here quickly that during the interview um, on the Missing Pieces show, I didn't capture this, so I don't know the man's name. I apologize. I feel like it's Joe or something. He was some type of like um, philanthropic guy allegedly, but I think he ended up being like a crook and he went to jail for tax evasion. I don't know. But I guess that he said he would put up $100,000 um, for a month, I think it was, for Brian's reward. So his reward fund, I think, was like a little bit over $25,000 just from various um, organizations donating and a little bit of money from their own family, things like that. But it was like really weird. Um, it would only be for a certain amount of time. like, And then he took it away. So in that same vein, um, there is a woman who's like very invested in this case. I think her name is Kelly Bruce. I might have that incorrectly, but I apologize. I'm pretty sure it's Kelly. Um, and she had started a petition to keep the reward fund going at like the 25000 for at least a year because people are like, why would you take this reward fund away? Like, ew, that doesn't sit right. So I just kind of wanted to mention that here. I just quickly looked to see um, about the reward and I don't think that it's still being offered, but I didn't check too far into it. So you might want to do that. Um, I just was reading the change.org, the petition that had been started. And that was several years ago was the last update. Um, so anywho, um, the tickets, the proceeds from those tickets were sent towards his reward fund. And then in 2010, Pearl Jam played at the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, which was about two miles from the Ugly Tuna. And Eddie Vedder dedicated the song Come Back to Brian. And he was kind of talking to Brian over the crowd saying, wherever you are, we're still thinking about you. Now, there are lots of theories that Brian uh, was the victim of the Smiley Face Killer. And the Smiley Face Killer is, at this point, a fictitious serial killer or a group of serial killers um, who remain unidentified. They focus on killing college-age white men described as smart, popular, athletic, almost all after they had gone out for a night of drinking. Um, and their bodies are found in rivers and lakes weeks later. Smiley face graffiti is found near the bodies, and what some investigators believe link these cases with the other similarities, but only about half of the bodies actually had the smiley faces located. The number of bodies is, depending on the source, between 40 to 250. <laughs> so it's a pretty wide range. Um, but between that number, only about half of them actually had the graffiti. And a smiley face is a pretty common piece to graffiti, you know, if you're not super, like, talented. So anyway, that's, like, a whole other um, episode. But a lot of people say... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what happened to Brian. Um, the only problem with that is it does fit his description perfectly because Brian was, like, really good at tennis. Like, he could have went pro or semi-pro. Um, very athletic, obviously very smart, popular, well-liked, white man, college student. Like, he fits every single thing. A long night of drinking. But his body would be the only one that has never been found. 
out of the other alleged smiley face killer victims. So I do try to exclude anything that I might find on forums or boards because anyone can say anything they want there. Like honestly, just like the rest of the internet or even me talking to you right now, I can say whatever I want. (laughs) Um, But I try to keep things that are, you know, a little bit more vetted, but I had to share this. So in April of 2018, a web sleuths user shared a copy of a July 21st, 2008 Yelp review of the Gateway Theater, and it gave zero stars for a stench. So I'm going to read the review. Um, They copied the text into the forum and it says, July 21st, 2008, previous review, one star for the location. I lived on campus before the Gateway and regardless of what everyone says, I like the Gateway aside from McFadden's and Sky Bar, which annoy me, one star for the indie films. In a city like Columbus, you would think a good independent film wouldn't be impossible to find. Aren't we the quote indie art capital or some, some such nonsense? Seriously. One star for the affordable parking and student price tickets. Cheaper and less annoying than Linux or Easton for sure. One star for not being jam-packed like the Linux. Zero stars for the stench coming from the, quote, cafe. And the fact that half the people in the theater either smell like alcohol or are actively consuming alcohol. Now, this user says when they're trying to link the review to the board in June of 2018, the review no longer exists on Yelp's website. So, like, Two months goes by and all of a sudden it's gone. Um, Other users say that they have read reviews in the time following Brian's disappearance about awful smells from around the Gateway Theater's kitchen, which would have been near the last area that Brian was seen on camera. Uh, Remember earlier when I said it had a reputation for being kind of stinky? A lot of people say that it smells like urine, which, um, yeah, have you ever been to a shitty bar? (laughs) Like, I have absolutely been to bars that smell like pee. I am so sad to admit that. Um, But other people say, hey, that's Brian. That smell is Brian. Because the reason that no one has ever seen him exit the bar is because he never did. And if you're young and drunk and, you know, used to going to crappy bars with bad smells, maybe you don't realize it's actually someone wedged inside of something between buildings. But guess what else? Remember that other time that I said that the bar was closed in 2018? The owner of Ugly Tuna says that he heard rumors that it would be converted into some kind of office space for OSU and whatever has happened, I'm sure that it's been cleared out of like some sort, Um, but maybe it's not the bar at all because of all the stinky kitchen comments. So people think that maybe uh, he has been wedged in between the buildings and it's, people think that it's coming from the kitchen, but really it's just that area between the two buildings. So after about 10 years of planning, one of the Olentangy River dams was removed and the restoration process took about two years. No evidence of Brian's body has ever turned up in the river before and it um, didn't. Nothing came up during the restoration either. A lot of people are like, his body would have been found pretty immediately if he would have fallen into the river because it was so shallow and a lot of things or even sadly other people that have been found they all kind of um, show up in the same spot so people don't think that it's likely that he was in the river um not to say that he couldn't have been <laughs> like that's why people put people in the water because you flow um but I'm just thinking that during this time, all of this renovation, people waiting around, all of the water testing, like you would think that maybe there would be an inkling of something. 
About two weeks after Randy's death, Clint's attorney, Neil Rosenberg, stated that he was convinced Brian was still alive. In an email to a private investigator assisting the Schaefer family, which is the same one that I mentioned earlier, Rosenberg wrote, If Brian is alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with the detective involved, then it is Brian and not Clint who is causing his family pain and hardship. Brian should come forward and end this. Um, The only problem is that the private investigator couldn't identify which of the detectives Rosenberg spoke with, allegedly. And when asked by media, Rosenberg said, nah, I'm not going to discuss my email or my claims. Repeated requests to the three law enforcement officers, including John Hurst, to determine who might have told Rosenberg that Brian is still alive went unanswered. A lot of people suspect that Clint declined more than once to take a polygraph because he was worried he would implicate himself if there was any connection to drugs. Uh, Mostly, though, Clint's attorney explains away his refusal by saying that a polygraph could be used against Clint and that he doesn't have any other details to provide than what he already has. Which, I'm going to be honest, um, I don't disagree with. Like, they've had years now to build things up against Clint because um, a lot of people have strong opinions about Clint. And even Derek himself has said, like, something's off. I think he knows more. Alexis has said, I think he knows more. Um, Clint's not very popular in the community of this case, but uh, a polygraph is bullshit. Like, we know that. The refusal to take one is always a little bit suspicious. Like, even knowing that you're like, mm. um, but it's not completely... um what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I don't judge, I guess, is what I'm saying. It could go either way. Sometimes you could be like, oh, man. Um, And other times you could be like, yeah, absolutely. I would never take one either. So I kind of see what his attorney is saying. Um, But most people are like, why wouldn't you just take one? Meredith took one. Like, why wouldn't you? The last credible sighting um, of Brian was in 2020. Um, There was this photo of a homeless person, I believe in Tijuana, Um, and he looked a lot like Brian and people were like, oh my God, oh my God. So they sent it to the law enforcement officers dealing with the case now and they forwarded it onto the FBI. And after some facial recognition analysis, they concluded that the man in the photo was not Brian Schaefer. So then on March 29th of 2021, the Ohio Attorney General's office released um, a new age progressed photo of Brian showing what he would look like at his age of 42. Um, At the time that the photo was released, the interim chief of police for Columbus, Michael Woods, said, quote, we would like to find every person from, from our missing person's case and we believe, I'm sorry, I'm going to start over because I'm struggling. We would like to find every person from our missing person's case and believe this is another step in hopes that we can find Mr. Schaefer. Uh, Lori Davis, who had befriended Randy and assisted in Brian's searches, and um, she started the Find Brian Schaefer website, um, which really doesn't have a lot of information on it. It's just kind of the flyer of the overview of his um, case you know, in his national missing database information. There's really, like, there's no tabs or anything to click on when you go to that. Um, But she continues to advocate for the Schaefer family and for Brian's case because it's just Derek. Like, Derek's the only one from the immediate family. Um, He's married and has a son. Um, So Lori's like, you know, I, I want to be a voice. I want to keep this going. 
So if you are interested um, in learning more about this case, I would highly recommend doing so because I spent 13 hours reading and watching and reading. <laughs> um, it's very easy to fall into so many different holes about theories and um, there's some other theories that I just didn't mention here. So I would suggest taking a look on your own. There's there's a ton of information and it's hard to kind of get it all into this 30 or 40 minutes. Um, but those are kind of the major highlights. So yeah, um, it's very, very strange to me. Like missing person cases as a whole are, you know, there's a like a different type of feeling for each case. This one is just like spooky to me. And I think it's because there has literally never been anything, nothing. Like in some cases they find a wallet, they find a car, they find your clothing. Like Brian was seen on security footage almost 16 years ago and that's it. Like nothing else. Um, so yeah, I mean, stranger things have happened. I would really like it for Derek to get some type of closure. Um, a miracle of Brian sitting on his beach like he wanted to do would be great. But um, after so long, you know, it's, I think his family probably just wants closure in any way that that might be presented. So um, in the show notes or the show description, I will put the contact information for Columbus PD because you never know what you or someone else might know in the smallest little bit can change the entire course of an investigation, even though it's been so long. Um, and I will also include the more descriptive details of Brian at the time of his disappearance. So thank you so much for listening to The Rain With Me. Bye. Thank you.